0: Now today I, I want to turn to Proverbs chapter 19, and I, I want us to, uh, we're going to focus on one verse today. I think it's a, a very important verse. Uh, we're a very young church, and uh, that's always a good thing. Most churches you find, uh, they're usually built right next to a cemetery. Uh, that's because most of the people are 80 or 90, and it's just a short hop over the fence to put them in the ground. But uh, God has blessed us here with, uh, with something that is a, is a phenomena today. And uh, everybody who comes through our church, uh, the pastors, people who really know the ministry and know how it works, um, they, they marvel at the fact that how many are young uh, couples and young people we have in our church. And uh, when I say young, I'm talking about people, from, you know, 50, 60 on down. I mean, you're still considered young at that point. But um, it's a phenomena today. Uh, most young couples, most uh, are in divorce court. And uh, most of them are having all kinds of problems. And most young men and ladies that are in our singles area, they, they don't care about going to church anywhere. God has blessed us. And, uh, you know, uh, we continually, uh, people get married and and they have kids. Uh, uh, we have had people, women who have just been married and they're going to have their first baby. And I've been told that uh, uh, there's a couple of you couples out there that are uh, thinking about having a baby. And, and that's a great thing uh... and it's just a natural thing where you know our churches have this young have a lot of have a lot of children but you know with having children comes a tremendous responsibility with having children you know we talk about the seven stages of spiritual growth and uh... the key stage uh... as you grow up is the father stage and the father stage spiritually speaking is that point in your life where now you begin to take responsibility in a major way your life is no longer your own, and uh, you now disciple people, you invest in people, you put all of the things in people's worlds that uh, you take from yourself and you give to others, and that's basically what happens in a physical sense when you have your first child. Your 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 life is over, as you once knew it. Um, it is. I mean, now you have the, you know, and the, and the more children you have, the over her your life gets. Let me just tell you. And uh, it's not only an emotional drain, but it's a financial drain, you know. And then you have all the responsibility, you know, to teach them everything. Uh, you know, as a father, I tried to, and I was a, I was not a, not the best father in the world. I'd be the first one to tell you that. <laughs> Just ask my kids; they'll tell you. But I tried to. I remember I bought them, I bought them their first car. And I remember I bought Kelly. I wanted my, I thought you know it was important for a girl to know how to drive a stick shift. I just think that that's, that's vital. I mean, that's right up there with handling a 357 Magnum, I think. <laughs> because you never know when you're going to have to drive a stick shift. And stick shifts can be scary. I, I learned to drive on one. I mean, uh, you know, and I know you get to the top of the hill. And, you know, and if you don't balance that clutch and gas right out, it starts to roll back. And if somebody's behind you, you're going to hit them. And it's a fear, you know. And, um, and so I, I, I remember I bought Kelly a, a little uh, escort, a little, you know, When I saw it and thought I bought it. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to get her her first car. And so it was a stick ship. And she didn't like it, but I said, you're going to drive. So I took him out, you know, and uh, I'm glad it wasn't rabbit season because he would have been shot for sure because she was jumping all over the place. But then I finally got her to the point, and I said, okay. In our, in our neighborhood, in our cul de it was up the hill. I said, just turns around. I said, just drive up there. Just go ahead over. And i never forget, Greg McClintock uh, was at my, stand at my house, and we were in the house talking. And I just said, you're on your own, girl. Go ahead and go and so the next thing I know you know after about five or ten minutes later she's she's knocking on the front door no car just her and she got to the top of the hill and she started to roll back she panicked so she just shut it off in the middle of the street and pulled the emergency brake on and walked home you know but long story short to this day she still can't drive a state gym can you do it? you can? no I don't think you can I don't think you can but anyway when you become a father there's a lot of things you start teaching your kids a lot of responsibility and uh, you know we don't usually think of proverbs as being a book on child training but it really is Uh, I'm going to tell you something most of all the other places that you go and and I've, I've sat through a lot of child training seminars you know Everybody knows that that's an issue for parents, so they want to make some money off of it. Everybody writes a book on it or puts a set of tapes on it, how to raise your kid and all those things. And And uh, I don't think ever in my life I've ever heard it ever start in Proverbs. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, that's where it all starts with with what's going on here. And uh, so, first of all... Uh, you know, I want to keep this in the context of of Israel as God's son. That's how I want to look at it first. We're going to take a little time with that. And then I want to take you into the practical application of this verse, of you as a father and a mother uh, dealing with your own son or your own daughter. And I think that uh, the, the lessons are very good here. We will look at, yet again, a great set of principles in dealing with uh, Israel and then how it relates and parallels to dealing with your own children. Now, Proverbs 19, verse 18 says this. It says, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his cry." Now, let's have a word of prayer here, and we'll get going. Rob, you're here from Lincoln. Would you stand up and ask God blessing on the service this morning? Lord, thank you for this day. I uh, humble hearts and just uh, pray for you to speak through uh, your word through Bob and just uh, bless this time that we have. Thank you, Rob. Amen. Now, within the context, starting with what it is in the book of Proverbs, we want to do that first, because I want to always get the right flow of things. This uh, chase and thy son here uh, will be a re- uh, uh, be a re- uh, be a reference to the nation of Israel as God's son. Last week we saw the two aspects that you want to study Israel. Well, there's really more than two, but the two main ones. Israel as God's son, Exodus chapter 4, and then we saw it as God's wife. And we showed you the, the two different aspects of that. And I also told you that when it comes to New Testament Christianity, it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, you are here, male or female, you are God's son and at the same time male or female you're also the bride of Christ so there's two aspects to that and that's a very important concept and uh, you know we understand that now that Israel was God's son in a corporate national way as a nation and we looked at the last couple of weeks how God was passing over their transgression because of the covenant that he made with Abraham and I gave you all this last week But at the same time, even though he's going to pass over their transgression, he also told them that he was going to chastise them and he was going to hold them accountable and he was not going to let them uh, just do whatever they wanted to do based on that covenant. And uh, just uh, for the record, uh, this chastisement that Israel uh, was going through or is going through, it starts from 606 B.C., When God kind of shuts down the kingdom of heaven to the nation of Israel and the times of the Gentiles begin to roll in, Daniel chapter 2, and it goes right up into the time that we're living today, right up into the tribulation period, and then the chastisement ends at the second coming of Christ. You need to know that. And in the Bible, it says much about this chastisement. And when in the Bible, it talks about God's chastisement to Israel, hey, they're great verses for our own understanding of of, uh, our own chastisement. I want to say this. If you're truly saved this morning, and I'm not saying you're not, but if you are truly saved this morning, I want to tell you something right now. You are not going to escape the woodshed of God at some point in your life. You're just not going to do that. Uh, at some point, you and God are going to head down that little path, at least from the back door of your house, down to that little shed down there, uh, and uh, you're going to get a whipping. It's just that simple. And so, all of these things will apply to us. Now, Psalms 94, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth. O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. Now that's a great verse because it, it tells us that the chastisement of God then is part of God's teaching process for your life and my life. That's very important. We're going to see how this builds if we go down through here. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. Now, so many of God's people do that. So many of God's people, they uh, they 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 get out of fellowship with God. They do their own thing, and then the hand of God comes down, and they have to go through chastisement. And they get a they get an attitude about it. Amen. They come to thank you. They get, you get an attitude about it, don't you? Amen. I've noticed it in you many times. You get an attitude about it, and that attitude takes away everything that God is trying to do. Now let me show you why. Let me show you why that you should not be weary of his correction or despise that chastisement when it comes And the other verse that would go along with this is IJS chapter 53 verse 5 it is talking about Christ here and it simply says this but he Christ was wounded for our transgression he was bruised for our iniquity the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed now here's the concept here's the thought if you think for one minute that God is going to lay All of our chastisement on his son. If you think for a second that he's going to take everything that we ever did that was wrong. That God should have put us in hell for. If you think that God's going to lay that all on his son. You're going to take that salvation. And then you're going to live your life the way you want to. And God's not going to come down and deal with you or not after what his son did for you. You're surely mistaken. So the chastisement of God is there to teach us something. It's there to bring us through some things. It helps us to, you know, whatever I go through in life, and I, I, I know that we're all this way and we all have things in our life that, that get us down and we struggle with, but no matter what we go through in life, the what we should do and what we should look at is no matter what we have to go through, Christ went through much more for you and I. So Amen. we may have to go through what we're going through, but we don't have to go through what he went through for us and when we take God's salvation there's a responsibility that comes with that and you're going to see how this responsibility builds as we come down through here and look at the nation of Israel now Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 11 without a doubt the definitive chapter in the Bible on God's chastisement as it relates to Israel first and then you and me second here's what he says and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked to him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth you as with son, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Now that verse right there gives you an insight into the fact that if you're truly saved, you're going to go to that woodshed. At some point in your life, in my particular case, it was probably every day of my life, but you're going to go through a chastisement because you're God's child. And you're going to see the parallels here in a moment. If you endure chastening, God dealeth you as son, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Now what he basically says here is this. If you go through your life and you claim to be a child of God and you're doing your own thing, and the hand of God's chastisement is not in your life, you're kidding yourself, you've never truly been saved. Because God says in that verse that He chasteneth every one of His sons. And He says if you don't get the chastisement, then you better look at something closely in your life. Furthermore, verse 9, we have, now here's the parallel, Furthermore, Furthermore, we have fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Uh shall we not much rather be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Now there's your verse that you want that tells you that all spirits come from God. He's the father of spirits. You want to mark that in your Bible. We talked about that, I think, Thursday night. For they, your mom and dad, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Now that doesn't mean, I need to explain it, that does not mean that your mom and dad just got up in the morning with glee because they're going to give you a whipping. That's and maybe in some cases they did, but that's not what it's saying here. The pleasure here is an old English phrase talking about, uh, you know, uh, you walk into a, a some place and a guy says, what's your pleasure? In other words, this is what you want. What do you want? And so he's basically saying that they do it after the structure of things in life, of, of doing what's, uh, what is right for you. For they after for a few days chasing us after their own pleasure, but he, meaning God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now that's another great concept. Your chastisement that God brings into your life isn't to hurt you, it's to help you. But when you get the wrong attitude about it, or you don't understand God's hand in your life, then you look at it and that's why you despise it. He goes on and he says, Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, what he says here, that chastisement will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to your life and to my life. I want you to keep that thought in mind. We're going to be coming back to that uh, in uh, throughout our time today. So please keep that uh, keep that in, uh, in a thought in your mind. Now, last week. I showed you that God had given Israel, and we talked about Israel as God's wife, given her a written bill of divorcement. We saw why under the law, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and Isaiah chapter 50. We saw Israel in two lights, as we want to study them, as I already said, the wife of God, and then, of course, the son of God. And now God has estranged himself from uh, his wife, and she can't find him. And this is why Israel cannot find God today, no matter what they do and uh, a lot most people today most gentiles most christian gentiles they have no idea of how god is dealing with the nation of israel and of course uh, uh you find uh, all kinds of well-meaning Christians you know they're bearing tracts and bearing bibles uh, uh in the ground you know that in the tribulation that the Jew will find them you know and come to Christ it's just a waste of time. I mean the bible says that God has estranged himself from them and now he has hid himself from them. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Let me show you this great concept. And there's a lot of them in the bible but I'm just going to take the time to to give you one here in this particular uh time we're together. And, uh, of course, this is dealing with the the parables. And in your Bible, there's 12 parables that are given to the nation of Israel. Uh, You'll find that there are 13, but the 13th one is one to the church and to the Gentiles, not to the Israel. But you're going to find that there are 12 parables in Matthew that are given to the nation of Israel. They're given to the nation of Israel after uh, Matthew chapter 12. Where Israel has now made their official rejection of the king and the kingdom. So it goes into a mystery state now which the Bible calls parables. And they can't get a thing. But here's the one that shows you that God has hid himself from them. It says again, verse 44, Matthew 13:44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a treasure hid in a field. The which, the treasure, what a man hath found, he hideth. For the joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Now, the teaching here is that the treasure, from Deuteronomy 31, Isaiah 54, Ezekiel 19, other places, the treasure is Israel. We know that the field, Matthew chapter 13, will be the world. And when you want to find the concept of He hideth, look at Deuteronomy 31, 17, Isaiah 54, 8, Isaiah 45, 15, Isaiah 57, 17, places like that. It actually goes into greater detail on how He found Israel, but when Israel rejected, then He hides Himself from Israel. And today, as we speak, and since 606 B.C., right up to the second coming of Christ, God has hid Himself from His people. And the last part of that verse says, And let not thy soul spare for his crime. Now what we have is a picture here of the treasure, the nation of Israel, that God found in the field, the world. And that God brings them into a being a nation, but they reject him. They reject him and they turn against him. And now they are under the hand of God's chastisement as God's child. And my, my, my any student of history will know that Israel as God's Son has cried out down through history. And the key and the amazing thing and the model for us is that all down through history Israel has cried out for God. Where's God? Try to find God and God has never slacked His hand of chastisement in their life. Never one time is He spared for their cry. And boy, let me tell you something, they have been crying uh, I guess I could start anywhere, but in 606 B.C., they cried out. God had brought the nation of Israel out, and the books of the Bible are great books because they, they really, uh, the early books, because they show how God formed up the nation of Israel. And they brought Israel to a place where they put them into the kingdom, and they established the kingdom. But Israel went after other gods, and Israel rejected the God uh, of Israel. And so, what happened in 606 B.C., and uh, a little bit later on in 587, see, uh, 587 down through there, is that uh, two nations came down and, and literally destroyed the nation of Israel. And this begins the official, the official times of the Gentiles. And this begins of the official hand of God's chastisement in their life. And oh boy, my, my, my. When Nebuchadnezzar came down to take Jerusalem into captivity, words cannot describe what they went through, how they cried, how they anguished, how they unbelievably could, went through that particular time. You know, Nebuchadnezzar comes down three times. We commonly date the uh, time of the uh, captivity from 606 B.C., and that is the first time he comes down. And uh, he defeats Jehoiakim, who's the king of Israel, and then he takes key people into captivity down to Babylon. This is where Daniel goes down in Daniel chapter 1, if you want to put that in your Bible. He comes down later again in 597 AD, and they lead a revolt against him coming down, and he whacks them a second time. And this is time that he takes Ezekiel. Into captivity both those writers are are exilic books they write during the captivity then he comes down a third time in 586 and uh, this time he really clobbers them they board up the city to try to keep him out and popular back in those days uh, they all they did they had all the time in the world the city had walls you couldn't get in you couldn't get out through the gate so what the armies did is just circled out the cities and laid siege to it They had plenty of food, plenty of water, they didn't have to lose anybody in battle, and everybody on the inside starved to death. And he lays his seat, Jerusalem is shut up for two and a half years. No food in, no water out. Nobody got in, nobody got out. For two and a half years, those little kids starved to death. For two and a half years, they didn't have water to drink, they didn't have proper food, they didn't get anything. All they had was what they had when the wall, when the gates were shut, and he wrung that city with his troops. And oh my goodness, did they ever cry out. He lays siege for two and a half years, and then, on July 19, 586 BC, the city falls. And Nebuchadnezzar goes in, and he literally butchers everybody in that city. They take the little kids and they throw them up in the air and they catch them on their spears. They set people on fire and threw them off the walls. They raped the women and ravished the women and, and killed the little children. They decimated everything about that. They went into the temple, the very temple that God had designed to have fellowship with the nation of Israel when they burned that temple. Destroyed everything about it. In Psalms 137 verses 1 through 4, the psalmist writes about that time. When he carried them off into Babylon. Gone to captivity. Lost their God. Lost their religion. Lost everything that God had given them. And he wrote, by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. This is why the willow tree is called a weeping willow. Because when Israel went into captivity they're all tore up, they're broken they're they're weeping, they've they've lost everything that they ever had. And they hang their harps, those same harps that used to play the psalms. Those same harps that used to play songs that were dedicated to God's glory and their relationship with Him. And now we hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us they that wasted us required of us mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion you know I know some of you like the world and I saw many of you like to stay in the world but you know that's exactly what the world does to you it'll take everything that God has ever given you from you and then after it does it'll look you right in the face and make fun of you because you lost it they took everything from God's people that they had, and then when they took it all, and they take him into captivity, they take him down by the river, and this is where Ezekiel is in Ezekiel after one, the river Sebar, and they say to them Play us one of your songs. Sing that old time religion for us. Rex Harrison was a was a guy he's dead now, and I I met him a number of years ago and uh, he was crippled. He he had polio when he was a kid and uh, he was a really good preacher, but boy he could play the piano. Nobody could play the piano and sing like Rex Harrison. It was incredible. <coughs> and Rex Harrison uh, you know my favorite song that he would sing is Some Golden Daybreak. Man, I'll tell you what, and I'll never forget that he told his testimony one night and how that he was saved when he was a kid and he got out of fellowship with God and he was, he was playing in a bar, piano. And he was playing the blues. And he was singing the blues. And a lady came up and put a $5 deal, $10 in his little tip glass there. And she says, you know what? She says, you sing the blues really well. She says, you must be a Christian out of fellowship with God. <laughs> he says, that thing hit me right between the eyeballs. He says, I am. I am. I am. You know why? That's what the world will do to you. The Word will take everything that God has ever given you. It will take you captive. And the joy, joy, joy you once had down in your heart, now you'll hang your harp on the old willow tree. And the very world system will look at you and say, Come on, sing us one of them songs. Come on, sing us one of those songs of Zion. And they say in verse 4, Oh, by my, my. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? You know, you can't. You know, when you can tell when somebody gets out of fellowship with God, you know the first thing that goes, their joy. First thing that goes is their joy. Bible says, He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and trust of the Lord, in Psalm chapter 40. And the first thing that goes when we get out of fellowship with God is that song in our mouth and our heart. The joy, 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 joy ain't down in my heart. And it goes and it shows it shows people get people get cantankerous they get bitter they get mad they get mean they get all kinds of things you know why because they've lost the joy and it's really hard to sing one of the Lord's songs when you're in a strange land it's just that simple what a great passage that is and then in 606 BC he scatters them through all the world for the next 500 years They're not in their homeland anymore. For the next 500 years, they're scattered through all of the Gentile nations. The stupid charismatics, and I use the word stupid lovingly, but the stupid charismatics, they believe in speaking in tongues. They don't even have an idea why God gave them tongues in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. They haven't got a clue. You know why He gave them tongues in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2? Because those Jews that are dispersion here were sent out for 500 years, I mean, they were still Jews, but they lost their native tongue. They no longer spoke Hebrew. So when God wanted to bring them back, He had to give the apostles the ability to speak in the language that they spoke, because they no longer spoke their native tongue for that 500 years of being scattered. I mean, it's an incredible thing. And oh, did they cry? Oh, did they cry? Uh, 70 years later, a small bunch goes back in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 66. And there's a reason for that. Because God had to have the Jews back in the land at the first coming of Christ. So he sends a small remnant back. And in in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 66, it gives you the number. 42,360. 42,360 Jews go back out of probably 20 million plus the rest of them got scattered or killed. That's called a remnant in the Bible. And they go back 70 years later but now they're under somebody else's control. And we see in Daniel chapter 2 the Gentile nation starting with Babylon and then going to Persia and then going to Greece and then going finally to Rome. At the first coming of Christ they're under the brutal Roman domination of the Roman Empire at all do they cry out. Jerusalem and Judea is the uttermost part of the Roman Empire. It's an outpost. Nobody wanted to be there. When a guy got stationed out there as the governor of it, he he must have done something wrong. It's like being in the military and being stationed in Nome, Alaska someplace at a radar station out there by yourself. And so the Roman soldiers hit. The climate was bad. The people were bad. It was not a very happy place to be. And so everybody was there in an occupational sense. They didn't want to be there. And boy, they took it out on the Jews. It was brutal. Christ comes to them at the first coming of Christ. And he reveals himself as their Messiah. And you know the story. They reject him. And after that rejection, they go on for a while, and they just get bad to worse, and then in 70 A.D., the hand of God chastisement never let up. God never stopped it. He never spared for their crime. When those back there in 606 B.C. and in the Roman Empire, and in 70 A.D., when Titus came down and destroyed the city a second time, And they were throwing those babies up in the air. And they were pulling them apart. And they were doing everything to them and ravishing the women and killing the men. Moms cried out for their kids. Moms cried out for their husbands. Husbands cried out for their wives. And God just kept putting it to them. Incredible. If you didn't know your Bible, you'd think God enjoyed something like that. I've had people see something like that or hear something like that and say, well, I can't trust a God like that. Your problem is you couldn't trust a God anyway. You know nothing about Him. Titus comes down and destroyed Jerusalem. And now they're scattered to the whole ends of the earth for the next 1800 years. We come up in the modern times of history today and the chasmite of God is, is so evident in the life of that nation. Ironically, Israel makes two very bad choices when it comes to God uh, coming to them at the first coming of Christ. In the Old Testament, their mistake was dumping God in His word for Baal worship. In the New Testament, it was taking the Messiah that God had given Him and rejecting Him and then crucifying them. And along with that, they make two statements and are the most damaging statements anywhere in the Bible. And they're two statements that absolutely set the demise for the nation of Israel. He's on that cross. He's going to be crucified, Matthew chapter 27, verse 2, or verse 25. And they're up there, boy, and they look at him, and they look at him as the Messiah versus Rome. And when they put him on that cross, you know what the nation of Israel says? He simply says this, one of the most terrible statements anywhere in the Bible. You want negative? Here it comes. His blood be upon us and our children. A little bit later on, when he's standing, or before, when he's standing before Pilate, Pilate wants to get rid of him. Pilate wants to get him off his hands, because Pilate knows he's innocent. And in John chapter 19, he comes up there, and and, and he he says to him, he says, he brings him out there, and he's beaten, and all of those things, and he stands before that Jewish crowd, and he says, shall I crucify your king? Second worst statement in the Bible, we have no king but Caesar. Let me tell you a little something about God you better learn quickly. God writes things down when we say them. He's standing up there. He'd given his son to, to the nation of Israel. He'd given his son, and he's standing up there watching these proceedings go on, watching Israel rejected, watching him go before the Roman Empire and his, his own children, the Son of God, the nation of Israel, turning their back on God himself. And when they made that statement, His blood be upon us and our people, Christ was God was standing right there, and he looked over at one of the angels, and he said, write that down. A little bit later on, he says, we have no king but Caesar. The great wise one said, write that down. And God held them to their word for the next 2,000 years. You better be careful what you say about your father to your father, your heavenly father. People all the time, stupid Christians, asking God to damn everything. And then wonder why their life is upside down in a toilet. You know why? Because God is holding you accountable to what you say. We can't even get it. And oh, did they cry out, Oh, did they cry out. Over there in Jerusalem today, they have what they call the Wailing Wall. It's talked about in Lamentations 2, verse 18, if you want to find it in your Bible. It's it's not the original temple that Solomon built. It's the second one that Herod built around 20 B.C. That's all that's left of that ancient time. And it's just a short part of that wall that's exposed. The rest of it has houses built around it, or buildings around it. But you go over there today, or you get on it and look at it, you'll find all the old Orthodox Jews standing right up against that wall, reading their scriptures. You know what they're praying for at that wailing wall? It's a wailing wall. You know why they're wailing? They're wailing because of, the, of what they have went through as a nation. And they're praying for the Messiah, for God to send them the Messiah, to deliver them from all the bondage of the last 2600 years. And because they're blinded, like so many of God's people, they don't even understand that what they're going through is simply because they have rejected the very one that God sent them. And I want to say something to you. I'm jumping quickly into the practical when I'm still in the doctrinal, but let me say something to you. If you're a child of God and you want to wonder why you're going through some really tough times in your life, you better see what you've done with the one that God has saved you and given you. And oh, has the hand of God of chastisement been on them. Up through the dark ages, 500 to 1500. They were severely persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. They were expelled from every country in Europe. They were put in the ghettos. That's where the original word comes from we think of the word ghetto in chicago or ghetto in kansas city as a very bad place well the word ghetto didn't start with kansas city or detroit or or chicago it started in the in the in the bible times where they collected all of the jews that wanted to keep them in one spot the jews were blamed for everything that happened when the black death came down through europe it was the jews that was there was there was their fault and they were persecuted in every place they couldn't own property they couldn't buy anything terrible bondage and God never one time slacked his hand on their chastisement from 1900 to 1945 they had amalgamated into Europe and they were all through Europe you have Russian Jews Polish Jews German Jews French Jews they're all through the land of Europe And when Adolf Hitler came to power, he looked at that nation of Israel. And he saw them as the scourge of Europe that needed to be eradicated. So he built places like Dachau. Soriwurm. Treblinka. Auschwitz. Auschwitz, where Dr. Mengele took little Jewish kids. And he, he was a fixation for twins. And he would try to take them and change their eye color by taking your little daughters, your little kids... And it, while they're awake, injecting dye into their eyeballs to try to change the color of their eyes. They would take Jewish men and put them in ice water that was freezing temperatures. And then they would stand around them with a clipboard, seeing how long they would last in a frozen water, so they would know how long their down pilots could survive if they went into the icy waters. Terrible experiments. He took Siamese twins. He studied them. And so he took two twins and sewed them together. Terrible things. Not to mention eight million of them went to the gas chambers. Not to mention that after they come out of the gas chambers, the ones that have tattoos like some of you have. No, no marks on your tattoos. Uh, uh, that's fine. But they cut off the skin and made lampshades out of them. They took the very flesh and made it into soap. They cut their hair off before they went in and they sent it out to uh, the places that would manufacture crosshairs for for periscopes on submarines or fill mattresses with it. I've seen pictures of, 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 of stack as high as this room filling up half this building of little kid's shoes that were taken off as they went into those gas chambers. I've seen videos where the little kid wants to panic and run, and he runs down there, a kid, right about our kid's ages, naked, made all his toes off. He's not going to go into that gas chamber, so he, he runs down to get away, and the guards laughingly unleash their German shepherds and Doberman pinchers and run that little kid down and tear him to pieces. They cried out. Excuse me for being so graphic this morning, but I want you to understand that what they went through is not what you and I go through. Oh, the air conditioner broke and we all had to work today in heat. They went through a chastisement. And God not one time ever slacked his hand back. And I'm telling you, if you, were, if you didn't know God and know the Bible and know why he's doing what he's doing, you think God was some kind of sadistic being. And I've heard that a lot from people. Stupid people, but people. And they cried out. Oh, God. They were in those concentration camps. I remember the diary of Anne Frank. And I remember going to her house in Amsterdam. Where they hid her and they found her. She went to Auschwitz. And she died in Auschwitz. And in her little writings, in her diary, she's asking, where is God in the promise of his coming? I'll tell you where he's at, sweetheart. You crucified him and you said, let his blood be upon us and our children. And God said, write it down. You said, we have no king but Caesar. God said, write it down. And you and I wonder why we go through what we go through. We wonder why our life is so upside down. We wonder why we can't get ahead in anything. We wonder why our life is just one dead in the street after another. You better look in what you've said to God and the attitude you've said it with. And God never one time weakened his hand to spare them. You know why? Because he loved them hard to grasp, isn't it? It's hard for us to understand and grasp in the world that we live in that everything has to be positive. Your kid gets into a league someplace and there's no losers. Everybody gets a prize because we don't want to ruin his development. The psychiatrists say, oh, don't whip your children. Don't ever whip your children. You'll warp his personality. My mom and dad were great psychologists. When they warped me, they warped me all over. It wasn't just my attitude about things. Amen. Amen. Those days are gone. So we have lost the concept of discipline and chastisement. So when it comes to God dealing with his people, we have a hard time believing how God could do that to somebody and still love them. We forget the great definitive verse that says that no chastening for the present is joy by grief, But afterwards, sometimes you've got to go through some things to get to the peace of God by your own choosing. In Acts chapter 2 verse 36, he said, he said Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You go over to the book of Psalms. I've told you before that the book of Psalms is basically uh, three aspects, doctrinally. The book of Psalms will be the Jew in the millennium. There'll be the Jew at the second coming. Or it'll be the Jew in the tribulation. And out of all of the Psalms, at least 63 of them, that I can think of right off the top of my head, at least 63 of them, you'll read it in the Psalms. They're crying out, Oh God, how long till thou deliver us? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh God, help me in my time of trouble. Oh God, arise, where art thou? Oh God, avenge mine enemies! Those are the great tribulation psalms of, in the tribulation period, the Jew crying out, you know what? God never stops his hand. Okay. Okay. Now let's get into the inspirational. I painted as black a picture as I could. Now we're going to get even blacker. Let's talk about this passage in a practical sense for you and for me. The verse said, Chasten thy son which while there is hope and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Now, God had a plan for Israel, and when they failed, He also had a plan of dealing with them through chastisement to teach them, Psalm 92. And just like that, God has a plan for you, your family, and especially in the context here, your children. Now look at Proverbs chapter 29, verse 17 and 18. Verse 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish, and he that keepeth the law happy is he. All my life I've heard that where pastors want to use it, and I guess it's okay. They want to use it as giving, giving uh, the people, you know, in their church a vision for where their church is going. I get it. I understand. I've done it myself. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it at all. But let's get it in a context. Let's put 18 and read 17 first and see where this vision really applies, first of all. Verse 17 says, Correct thy son, and he shall give uh, thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law happy is he. You see how he said, Correct thy son, in verse 17, and then, where there is no vision, the people? That son is Israel. And in the Old Testament, what God did is He always gave Israel a vision. And you and I as a mom and dad and our parent, when we have kids, our sons, our job is to give them the vision. I'm not talking about a plasma, I'm talking about the vision of God. God had a vision for His Son Israel, and you as a parent should have a vision for your child. And that vision is a vision of correction to serve God. A vision of a life with God. And not a vision of sports. You no, know, it's alright for your kids to play sports. You know, some parents, that's all they do is they design their kids to go out and be a ball player. I've known some parents that all they do is want to get their kids to get all the and they can so they can get a good job. Nothing wrong with that. I see parents that want to be so career driven with their kids or sports driven with their kids that they'll that they'll take their kids out of church on Sunday morning to play ball and play this or do that and all that. I appreciate the parents in this church that when you get sign your kid up you say you know what we'll be there every time except Sunday morning and Thursday night. Now you may not think much of that but I want to tell you something that's a great testimony to a lost guy. Amen. Doesn't mean anything to you most God's people but it's a great testimony. Because you want to give not only a vision of of a life with God, you want to instill in that kid. You know what? There are some things in this family we don't negotiate. Now, I get criticized for that. I don't need a big piece of paper to list the things I don't get criticized for. (laughs) But I don't care. You know what? When you get to the judgment seat of Christ and you stand there with your family, it ain't going to be how many touchdowns you made. It ain't going to be how many home runs you hit over the fence. It ain't going to be how many baskets you scored. It's going to be what did your family do that I gave them to you? And what vision did you present before them? You know whatever your kid's vision is today? It's basically your vision. I don't mean this in a wrong way, but you know what a lot of the ministry is? A lot of ministries taking young men and young ladies and correcting the vision that mom gave them, and dad gave them. that were bad visions, but that's the ministry. And Psalms ninety four twelve says the chastisement is part of that teaching process. Bible says in Psalms one twenty seven one that the children that we have are God's heritage. They're not your heritage. They're not even your kids you maybe have custodianship of them and you may be the stewards of them but don't ever get to the place where you think they're not God's old Mel Shabaka used to tell the story I heard him say it many many times he he didn't do it much after he got older but when I was with him in the younger years and he was preaching uh, he preached back then nobody ever really I think Maybe very few people ever heard him preach the way he really preached. When he got old and, and, and older now, he mellowed out a little bit. But let me tell you something. Back there in the 60s and the, or the 70s and the 80s, when we were 70s anyhow, and we were doing our deal. And we were going to those little churches in Bridgeport and in Janesville and, and those places that we were going down there preaching. Boy, I'm telling you something. He was something else. I remember him telling a little story how he didn't want to serve God. He didn't want to preach. And he thought everything in his life was his own. And he tells a story how they had a little sweetheart, little blonde girl that was born and she only lived for a short period of time, a couple of days, a week maybe, and she died. And he used to tell the story with tears. He didn't cry much when he got older. But I've watched him down there and I've watched him get in front of that crowd of about this size in those churches down in Bridgeport, Ohio. Bridgeport, Ohio is a tough town, boy. It's an old water river town. Steubenville, another river town. We used to get some of the wildest places you ever saw in your life. He'd get up there and he'd tell that story. He says, you know what, folks? He said, I wanted it in my own way. I thought everything in life was mine. He thought I thought those kids were all mine. He said, you know what God had to do? God had to come down and pluck me a little flower out of my garden and plant it in his garden. And he'd get down on his knees and he said, the caretaker, the undertaker come over and said, we're going to lower the casket. He said, get out of here or I'll kill you. He took that little casket about that long and he... Knelt down and he put that little casket down there and when he laid that casket in the ground he told God, okay God you're right, none of this is mine it's all yours and from this point on I'm going to give it to you all It's yours because it is yours and he got up on that, buried that little baby and he never looked back in his preaching it's not yours we just think it is them because we feed them, because we do all the fun things with them, we get the illusion that they're really our kids. Well, God maybe entrusted them to you, and you may be the custodians of it, and you may be the mom and dad, but God gave them to you so you could give them the vision of Him. Because they're His heritage. They're not yours. And there will come a time when you don't instill that vision that you'll not be able to reverse the process. That verse says, Chastise turn out, son while there is hope, because there will come a time where there won't be any hope. Now, I don't mean there won't be any hope that they, God's going to kill them. Maybe he will, I don't know. I don't mean there's not any hope that, that they, they will get mad at you and never speak to you again, though that happens a lot. Well, where the hope will never be, and the hope will come to the point where there'll come a point in that child's life, and you as a parent, that you'll never serve God together, standing side by side, ever in your life. And maybe that is no hope to you, but when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, the reality is going to be, that's no hope. Because God gave them to you for a reason. They're God's heritage. Now, as you study, you study Israel as God's son, you'll see five stages that he gave to Israel to give them the vision that he wanted them to have. And I've taught this before. It's in my books back here on, I got it right out of the Bible. I mean, I'm sorry, I, I didn't get a chance to listen to the internet that day to get a better one. I just got it out of the Bible. The same five things, I, stages I teach you and your children based on what God did with Israel. And the first stage that you have to deal with your child on is the discipline stage. You know why? Because the fundamentals of all life will be discipline. That child has to learn from day one that there are consequences with the choices that we make. And the only way you can do that is to instill a great understanding of discipline. That's why when God began to deal with Israel, you know the first thing he did? Gave him the Ten Commandments. He didn't give them the Ten Commandments so they could keep them. He knew they couldn't keep them. He gave them the Ten Commandments as a standard of what he expected. Now when you stay down the discipline stage in your young child's life from three years old, two years old on, you're laying down the fundamental concept of all life that he understands that from that point on as he gets older, every choice they make Will have consequences. You know what's wrong with most car- most kids today? You live your life and do whatever you want because your mom and dad never told you there's any consequences to it. You know why they never told you? Because they never saw it for their own life. Well, tell you something, kids. There's consequences to every choice you make in life. And you know what happens? You know what the downside of it is? We make some of those choices and we get away with it. That tends to make us to think that there are none. Right Right up to the point that you make the one that nails you. But then it's too late. Oh, the no hope is not God going to come down and kill you. I mean, if that was true, God ought to kill us all. The no hope is not a fact that he's going to put you in a wheelchair someplace. No, the no hope is that you as a family, when God gave you your children and there to be a heritage of the Lord... You're going to get to the place sometime where they're 18, 19, 20, 30, and they're off doing their thing this morning. And they're nowhere involved with you when touching the things of God in their life. No hope. They're not coming back. You've taught them well. That Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. You took it the other thing. You read it wrong. You train up a child, and away they'll go. The second stage was Relationship. This will be when God gives them the judges, Samuel and the early prophets. The relationship stage for you as a parent is now where you can have meaningful talks, serious dialogue with issues they face. This is where you can warn them, you can prepare them. This is where you can get proactive in their life. This is where you can now begin to disciple them. You know the word disciple comes from the word discipline? In other words, when you disciple somebody, you're giving them a form of discipline. You go to college someplace, especially in places like medicine, I'm sure, Rob, or places like uh, psychology, and they'll say, uh, uh, I'm, I'm in med school, and they'll ask you, what discipline are you studying? In other words, are you going to be a general practitioner? Are you going to be a brain surgeon? Are you going to be a heart surgeon? You're going to be a uh, whatever you're going to be. What, what are you going to discipline yourself to to be a doctor at or a psychiatrist at? and I took my course, I, I took it in ceramics, because I deal with crackpots <laughs> then you had the fellowship stage and that'll be represented by David wouldn't it? David is the greatest example in the Bible of having fellowship with God and this is where we turn our children over to God through the relationship and the discipline that we've already built by the model of our fellowship with Christ And this is where your child will now begin to build a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they'll never want to lose. You you want to get to the point with your children. And and, and and I'm not bragging about it, but I am here with my kids. And it isn't probably anything that I did, but I am here with my kids. My kids would rather get run over by a truck than break fellowship with their dad. And that's a great key. They would rather get beat up by a, a you know, a 500-pound a sumo wrestler than to get out of fellowship with their dad. We can't stay out of fellowship. Jamie and I go head-to-head head for things on times, and it's hard for us to last an hour. She'll, she'll call me, or I'll call her. Maybe the first couple of times we'll hang up on each other, but sooner or later we'll connect. <laughs> Kelly's the same way. Kelly's always coming up and saying, Dad, are we Okay. I get a text a thousand times a day from my kids. Are we okay? Are we okay? Sometimes I I just say, no we're not. Send me money. (laughs) You want to get to the place where your child cannot stand being out of fellowship with mom and dad. And when you take that through discipline, relationship, into the fellowship, those same kids will never be able to stand being out of fellowship with God. I didn't say they wouldn't get out of fellowship. I'm saying they won't stay out of fellowship. God will always, through that relationship that you built, bring them back. It's just that simple. The next stage, the fifth stage, I'm sorry, the fourth stage, will be the responsibility stage. That'll be Solomon. Psalm was the wisest man that ever lived. God gave him all the knowledge that God had. And along with that knowledge, can you understand the responsibility that came along with it? And kids, at some point in your life, you're going to get... If you do this by the book, you're going to get a tremendous amount of information about God and the Word of God. When it comes to whom much is given, much is required. There's going to be responsibility that goes along with that. You know what Solomon did? Solomon's famous prayer, boy, when he gets down there, when he, he, he tells God that he's not worthy for this, and he promises God that he's not going to let the information that he gets ruin him, but he's going to keep it for the glorification of God's people. Then the last stage... that's the ministry stage and that'll be the kings of Israel they begin after Solomon and the kingdom goes on the kingdom splits north and south and you have a line of kings in the north and a side of kings in the south at the ministry stage this is where your family your kids come full circle now they're standing by your side doing the work of the ministry And yet, when we look back to Israel, this is where they go into a complete breakdown and failure. This is great lesson material for all of us who are parents. Now, all five of these will build on each other. As you progress through and add them, they'll build on the last one. But it all starts with a discipline stage. If your kid does not understand the discipline of life, and the things that they do will have consequences... You see kids all the time living their life. I mean, 8 or 9, 4 or 5, 6 or 7, it's very obvious that when they get 20 or 30, they're going to have no more thought of the things that they're doing because they have no thought of them when they're that age. I mean, it's a simple fact. If you won't obey when you're 4, you're not going to obey when you're 40. But unfortunately, most of God's people do not train their children. Their children train them. Let me ask a simple question. How many times do you want to tell your child to do something before they do it? I see parents all the time. i will tell you one more time. He looks at his sister. That was number four. We got six more to go. Let's keep on doing it. They're training you. I'll give your child once or two times. But that should be the end of it. It should be the end of it. This thing where they just keep on doing it and just ignore what you tell them. You know why they do that? Because you've allowed them to do that. In setting up a biblical form of discipline, that will also it will also contain chastisement. A parent should follow several basic rules, I think, in establishing a vision for God for their for their for their child. And I think that God does this with Israel again. <clears throat> These aren't seven stages you go through. These are just the seven things that you want to understand. The first, God does all this with the First thing he, you need to do with your child, you need to define their boundaries. You know, God did that with Israel. He said, you stay away from the other nations. Don't let your boys marry their girls. Don't let your girls marry our boys. You'll find out in Leviticus chapter 18, 19, and 20. And you have to teach your child what you expect from them before you hold them accountable, responsible for doing it. Much of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is defining in great detail what God expects of them, <clears throat> and if they don't much of that Bible is the negative side that talks about the consequences. You had to read Deuteronomy chapter 11 and chapter 28 where half the chapter is if you do this I'm going to be good to you and if you do this here's what's going to happen. They understood. They realized the boundaries. Does your child understand the boundaries of what they can do and what they can't do and when they cross that boundary what kind of reaction do you get from them? Second thing is you got to hold the line of accountability or responsibility. You know, there's a lot of parents that their kids are the perfect kids. They've never did anything wrong. Some of you have dealt with, that's right, you got to write on the money, sweetheart. Good job. <clears throat> Some of the, I've seen parents that, you know what, you've had to deal with them. When their kid did something wrong, I've had to deal with them. And the moment I sit down and I say to them, look, we have a problem with your kid. I know I'm in Dodge City heading for a shootout and I do not have a gun. Because it's always somebody else's fault. Now I want to tell you something, I love our kids here, and your kids are all good kids, and probably some of the best kids you could have, but don't ever kid yourself. Inside is as rotten and black as the sides of the bottomless pit. You go into that nursery and you got the sweetest little kids running around and diapers in there and running around and all the nice, sweetest things, and there's a the kid in there. Let me tell you something, inside those kids right now is Charles Manson. <laughs> As a parent, you have to be decisive. You have to be strong. It has to be the husband and the wife together. A big problem with husband and wives is they don't agree on how to discipline the kids. You know what? Your kids will play that to the ends of the earth. You know what they do right now. Daddy, can I go do this? No, you can't. Or ask your mother. Mom, can I do this? Dad said it was all right, but I had to ask you. They'll play you. In your family, there should never be a thing where you have to go ask the dad or ask the mother. Who's in charge of your family? Who runs it at the end of the day? Do your kids or do you? There has to be accountability and responsibility. In the early years, you keep before them that they're responsible uh, for their choices and their actions. You, You see this in the Bible. Uh, It's Exodus chapter 35, uh, 32, I believe. Yeah, 32. And uh, Moses is up on the mountain. And the children of Israel, just like your children, they go sideways. And they have everybody break off your earrings. Get the usher down here. Let's get a collection of all the earrings. And they put it into a fire and they make a a, a golden calf. They've not been out of the promised land for, what, 16 minutes. And they're already going back to Baal, going back to Egypt. Aaron was the guy that was in charge. Aaron's a weak leader. Aaron always reminded me of many fathers that I've seen with their families. Weak. Nice guys. Some of the nicest guys on the planet. But when it comes to their family, they're weak. And so what he does is, is he he allows this whole son of God, the nation of Israel, to make this calf. Moses comes down, he hears the riot going on down there. What they're having a, he says it sounds war. When he gets down there, they're having rock concerts, they're dancing, you know, I mean, they're going to town, they're having a great time. <laughs> he breaks the Ten Commandments, he calls Aaron on the carpet. You know what Aaron said? Instead of taking responsibility for what he is the leader allowed to do, you know what he did? He blamed it on the people. Aaron's your first evolutionist in the Bible. Did you know that? He said, we took all these earrings and threw it in the fire and out walked this calf. (laughs) Darwin, man. Origin of the species. I love the Bible. I love how God doesn't let us get away with anything. Oh, Aaron blamed it on the people. People blamed it on Moses being up there too long. When God wrote the final analogy of that chapter of all went on, you know what God said in Exodus 32 verse 35? He says, in the calf which Aaron made, you're not going to get out from under the responsibility and accountability of what God's called you to do. You just think you are. We own the bad choices that we make and we can't blame them on somebody else. The third thing is avoid unrealistic expectations. Know and understand their limitations. Don't put them in situations that they're going to fail in when you know they are. God kept them wandering for 40 years before he ever took them into the land. You know why? He knew they couldn't stand it. Give the time to grow into the circumstances of life. Help them. Be patient with them. Encourage them. Keep the vision alive before them. And the way you do that is by you living it before them. The fourth thing. Be able to read your child. God knew the nation of Israel. He said about Abraham back there in Genesis 18. For I know him. I know what he's going to do. Why you're the parent. You ought to be the closest thing to your child. You ought to know that child. You ought to be able to read that child. You ought to be able to know its mood. His temperament. Or their temperament. Their strengths. And also their weaknesses. And you help develop their abilities to deal with the, the weaknesses. And give them praise for their strength. The fifth thing. Use any dialogue that you have with them, any dis- through disobedience, anything that they do wrong. Sure, you have to deal with it on different levels. I understand that, but you make a terrible mistake as a parent if you don't lose, if you don't use that disobedience as a teaching tool. They're going to make mistakes, and you're going to have to deal with it. But it's always in a loving, kind way to use their mistakes and hold them, help them grow through them. That's why you find Christ in the New Testament, he's always, when he's dealing with somebody, he's always using object lessons. He's always taking what they did and show it. It's like this. He's using it as a teaching tool. You know, I, I've said it many, many times, and this is no criticism. If you're doing it, this, I, I certainly don't care, and I support you because you have a right to do it. you do. I'm not a big proponent of Christian schools. High schools. I'm not a big proponent of homeschooling. It's your choice, and I'm not, I would never say anything about anybody that did it. This is my own personal opinion on the thing. Uh, I I think that most parents send their kids to Christian school because they think sending their kids to a Christian school, that gets them out of the responsibility of doing what's right with their kids at home. Because Christian school is going to take care of it. And very frankly, most of the parents that I've seen, there's been exceptions to this. I can think of a couple exceptions as I'm speaking to you. But let's be honest. Most of the most of the uh, parents who homeschool, most of the women who homeschool have no, have no business homeschooling anybody. I wouldn't let them walk my dog down into the block. She's going to go to the bathroom. There's no discipline in their life. There's no structure in their life. They'll put their kids on there and give them some books and they'll go watch the, As Your Stomach Turns on TV or something like that. You shouldn't say this, talk like that. When you've been around this business for 45 years, sweetheart, you come and talk to me about it, okay? I'm telling you, I've seen it. And I've had to deal with their kids. Where's Steve Brackeen Sr. at? not Sr. Junior, where's Steve? Is he back here? He spent his whole life in a Christian school. He was the worst kid I ever had in my life. Yeah, it was. Was it good for you, Steve? you were the biggest mess in your life in Christian school weren't you? Right. yeah for sure I mean destroyed everything did you go to? yeah she turned out better than you but you were a mess I lost him when he was about 16 or 17 you know why? because he went to this Christian school and he was smarter than the parents he was smarter than the teachers there he knew it was a fallacy but instead of doing what was right with it he just went back to the world then he met Nikki. Nikki slapped him right out of that thing man and then he came here and I got him back, of course Nikki didn't like me at first but he got him back I'm telling you I have a reason for what I say and I'm not making a judgment on anybody, I've seen some parents that were women that were really good at homeschooling and I saw some that couldn't get off the couch other than to get a candy bar your kids are gonna make mistakes and you're gonna to have to deal with it but the thing you never want to do with your kids and this is what Christian schools do and what a lot of homeschoolers do they get the idea that I'm gonna isolate my kid from the world you don't ever need to try to isolate your kids from the world because you want to take the bad experiences they have and use them as a teaching tool you don't isolate your kids from the world you insulate them from the world You know how you do that? Give them a vision. Give them a vision. Give them a vision. The sixth thing. Know when to spank and when not to. You don't give a kid a whipping because they spill milk. You don't necessarily give them a whipping because they get rowdy and knock something over. And you don't spank them out of anger because they inconvenience you. You know, I mean, there are times when God killed 3,000 of them on the golden calf. And then there's time that he just sent the plagues to them. And then there's time that he just come down and said, don't do it again. But there's a time when corporal punishment has to be put into their lives. And I, there's four key areas that I think that uh, that, that uh, you have to bring out the Board of Education. <laughs> the first one will be rebellion against any authority, your authority in particular. I worked at Woolworths, which was a five and ten cent store when I was a kid. and In high school, I was a dishwasher, and we had these big windows right by the restaurant. And I'll never forget one day this woman and it it had poles like this only they were closer together because on both sides of the mall mall was open on the top and it had poles holding everything up and I was over here like the wall looking out the window picking up dishes and a woman was walking down the thing with her with her son he must have been about six or seven eight years old I don't know and he must have wanted a toy where they were and she wouldn't buy it for him and he's throwing a fit I mean he is screaming so loud and it was Echoing in the thing. I mean, that's how I heard it. I mean, I'm inside the building, and it's echoing. He's screaming, and it was so funny. She was going down the thing, and every time she passed the pole, he would wrap his leg and arm around the pole, it wouldn't come. And she'd have to drag him off there and pull, and she was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. And it was a thing where it was a scene. And, you know, she's praying. I wish that I went to that mall that only had two poles, because we had like 20, <laughs> all the way down there and I thought to myself, you know there's, isn't there times in your life when you see someone else's child that is totally, and you say to yourself I wish he was mine for about five minutes. Amen. I never forgot that day, you know why? I looked at that and I wasn't even a Christian then, well I wasn't right for God anyhow. Years later I remember that, that, that event and I remember her tugging on that kid from pole to pole to pole trying to get him back to the car and I remember thinking to myself, you know what? That's exactly how God gets us most home to heaven. Not getting what we want, whining and screaming and crying, hanging on pole to pole as God tries to get us home. I'm telling you. So you got to know when to spank. First one is you got to, you know, you got a rebellion against any authority. And then the second one is you never tolerate lying or deceit. You allow these things to get rooted in their life, and you don't deal with it. The third one will be willful disobedience, and of course, the fourth one will be hurting others. We had a little kid one time in our church. This has been years ago. He's a cute little kid. I went up to him, and some morning, you know how I am. I just like kids, and I went up to him one Sunday morning. I said, "How are you doing?" He kicked me. I said, "Okay, you're doing okay. I'm glad." I know what your goal is in life, field goal kicker for the Chiefs. Number seven. Knowing that you the parent are the key to it all. Everything, everything rises and falls on your leadership. No one will ever have more influence, you want to remember this, no one will ever have more influence in your child than you. No teacher, no friend, no boyfriend, no girlfriend, nobody. You know why a, a guy can take a girl out of a family? And she leaves the family. You know why that happens? It's because that parent, that mom and the dad, let him have more influence in her life than they did. And now they want to complain about the fact that this terrible boy just stole my daughter. No, 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 no. You just basically drove her over to his house and he'd take her. People are strange, isn't it? Nobody will have more influence than them unless you allow them to. You have complete charge. And if ever get to the place where there's no hope, it's by your hand. Psalms 127.4, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. You get a guy that can hit a, take that clock back there on the wall with a bow and arrow, he can just put five arrows right in that thing. You know what? You take your children as arrows in the hand of a mighty man, and you launch them in life, heaven or hell. Vision of God, vision of life. It's our responsibility. You know, and just as God was instrumental in establishing discipline and chastisement in his, in his son Israel, You and I as a parent will be the key factor in instilling it into our children's lives. And God did it through the leadership. You know that. And just as God used the leadership of Israel, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, the prophets, He kept the vision before them and alive and held them accountable to it. We as parents, through those five stages of growth and development and putting those things into our children's lives and understanding it, we bring them along through our leadership. And when it's time to deal with them on an issue, and chastisement is the order of the day, you don't hold back. You don't spare for his crying. The ancient folk adage is, spare the rod spoil the child. And you are not to spare your own feelings when it comes to your child. Just like God chastisement, and he loves the nation of Israel and us. And he knows that the chastisement brings about the peaceable fruit of God. And I get it. No mother or father who loves their children ever enjoyed uh, hearing them cry and scream when they get dealt with. I understand it. Hey, I used to take my little kids when they were little, little, and I had to give them a whip, and it was the hardest thing in the world. I mean, i make them pull their little pants down and bend over that bed, and no little, little buns on the rear end, and I got to whip that thing. I didn't want to do that. I mean, come on. What parent would? There's something wrong with you? And they look up and they say, no, daddy, no, Dad. man, I, I'm, I'm right there, you're right. No, come on, let's, let's do something else. Give me 20 push-ups. You know? but, <laughs> that's not a substitute. There are times when you've got to do it. Cute buns are none. <laughs> and I get it. Many moms and dads are so squeamish of that and having that little one holler that they just have to, they have no heart to do it. So they try to substitute, you know okay I'm just gonna give you a timeout Well, they do that in football all the time and hockey and they still get in fights (laughs) I'm gonna take this away from you hey I get it go to your room go to my room ah that's great I got a Nintendo I got a big screen TV I got my computer yeah I'll go to my room well you're not gonna have supper no problem I'm gonna order out Now, I'm not saying that those things cannot be of value and you shouldn't use them at time. I really do. They are. They're valuable in their place. But they don't take the place when these four things happen that you've got to get down and you've got to get serious. The Proverbs 19:18 is sound, practical, wise, exact, and clear. And no amount of trying to improve in it will ever work. And the idea is simple and straightforward. I've, I've taken all this and put it into Bob's world. Here's Bob's world on discipline your children. You can forget everything else I said. You just get these next four, five, six things down. You're good to go. This is Bob's world. This is Bob looking at life, looking at kids, looking at the Bible, and then boring it all down to five or six things that you want to remember. One, whip him before he can whip you. That's good. That's number one. Whip him before he can whip you. He'll be too big and old in a while, and then all hope will be gone. That's number two. Number three is, better that the child should cry when he is young, listen to me, than mom and dad crying over him when he's older. Number four, the key to children is whale blubber. Whale on him till he blubbers. (laughs) the fifth one let him holler it'll develop his lungs the sixth one and the board of education should always be applied to the seat of their understanding (laughs) my sermon in a nutshell now here's the key for parents really you get the biblical concept of discipline down with your child early in life you get the five stages working like we talked about You start implementing the things that we've talked about. He grows through the stages, and you will deal with him, his issues or her issues, and chastisement early in life. It's part of the process to get him the right way. But when you reach the last three stages, remember the first two stages were discipline and relationship. Discipline is doing what's right, and relationship is why we do it this way and why it's going to be this way. But when you get, to, when they get to be 12 or 20 years old, anywhere, somewhere in there, they, they hit that last three stages. The fellowship stage, the responsibility stage, and the ministry stage. Now because you have dealt with them on the first two, when they get to this age, you'll have to deal with less restrictions on them than more restrictions on them. Because you've already got the first things accomplished. Now you're with you in ministry. Now they're used by you side by side. Now the last thing they would do is badmouth you and disrespect you. Now the last thing they would do is say something derogatory to their mother or to you, or use a cuss word in them. That's the last thing they would do. You know why? You trained them early. And now they come to the point where they're at 15, 20, 12, up to 20 years old, and they hit that last three stages. <coughs> now everything becomes easier because you've done the work when they were younger. And when you do it God's way, it's basically the problem free. I'm not saying they're not going to have issues. I've heard some of... Uh, I remember one time as a kid in a family. This kid was never dismal in any way, shape, or form. <clears throat> his father got old and, and uh, couldn't do what they needed to do. And, and the kid was, he was, a, he was huge. He was 16 or 17 years old. He was probably 6 foot 6 foot 7. He was a monster in more ways than one. And what they used to do, used to take his dad and pick him up and stick his head in the toilet upside down when Dad would try to when try to discipline them that man bless his heart I'll never forget when he died he had cancer remember when he died he came to a Wednesday night church service and passed away right during the service but you know God's got a way and that's a terrible thing and that's something that, that is a terrible thing for anybody to do a terrible thing to hear But you know God's got a way of working that all out that same boy went from bad marriage to bad marriage, did everything, it. his life was upside down, and his life was a mess, he couldn't get anything. You know what he did? One day he went in and took a 12-gauge shotgun, put it in his mouth, blew his brains out. God's going to get it one way or the other. When you do it your way, then life is completely a disaster. And now you, in most cases, have lost your child... And there was no hope, as I said, no hope as far as ministering together as the heritage of God. And you know, Israel's biggest problem all through their relationship with God was the source of all of their issues. It'll be the same thing that you and I face. It's what you and I face with God as his children, but it's also true what your children are going to face with you. That is the breaking of their will. Some kids are stronger will than others. Most parents have multiple kids. The first kid they get down through there and he's got a very passive will when they think it's good and they make the mistake to thinking all kids are that way, so number two and number three comes along and he's the incarnate antichrist with a will of his own, and because they took their finger off the trigger, they lose him. I've seen it all my life. Strong-willed Israel, strong-willed child. You must break that will early in life before it takes root. Israel was talked about being a proud people, stiff-necked, hardened heart an absolute uh, against every way of God and against everything that God wants them to do and in families it will be the exact same way he meets that child needs to meet the brick wall of strong discipline that mom and dad are together and uh, it's constant and that kid knows that you know what there is no profit in my life of disobedience this isn't going anywhere There are no crocks to get through. There is nothing that I can do to get around this. I can't go against one against the other because mom and dad are together. They are so stuck in that Bible. There is no way to get around the principles. You know what? After a year, six months, or whatever, that child just comes to the place and he says, I'm just going to do what's right because it hurts too much not to do right. It took God 2,600 years to bring Israel to her knees. Breaking a stall wheel child is not done overnight. Hopefully it won't take it 2,600 years, but you understand what I'm saying. <clears throat> now all the training and chastisement and discipline and all that should be, in, obviously shouldn't be enveloped in an atmosphere of mom and dad loving each other, showing affection. To the kids, I love you 100 times a day. I've actually met dads that could never tell their kid they loved them. I, I'll say myself. I, I grew up with my dad and my mom. Uh, my dad died when he was 56 years old. I had just was still in the Army. And I was 20 then. And I think for the 20 years of my life, I never one time heard my dad ever tell me he loved me. I know he loved me. He made all kinds of sacrifices, But he just couldn't get to the play. My mom didn't either. My mom and dad, my life growing up was, was was a fight. Mom and dad all the time. Every Christmas was a disaster. I remember as a little kid, you know, being afraid that the Christmas we were gonna. They'd always throw the Christmas tree. I don't even know why we got a Christmas tree because we, right after Christmas it always got thrown out in the front yard. And I can just sit there as a little kid looking up and watching my mom. My mom was hell on wheels. Boy, she ripping that tree out, mad about something, throwing that thing down. My dad get mad. He'd punch my mom, and they'd go around and around and around and they get into it. I remember one time my mom, my dad broke my mom's glasses and uh, you know and, and, and she's out in the garage sitting in the car crying and my dad's in there ranting and raving and I'm just a little guy and we had plans to go to the movies and now those plans are off but I didn't know that I still thought we could go to the movies but my mom's glasses were broke so stupid me I had two little magnifying glasses and I taped them together And took him down to my mom and said, Mom, could we still go to the movies? (laughs) Stupid. I know. I know. What are you supposed to do when you're six years old, man? I wasn't an ophthalmologist. I didn't know how to do all that stuff. I do now. (laughs) When it comes to chastisement, a son of God, as a bride of Christ, you see how it works? In a a biblical relationship between a husband and wife, a child sees and understands from the very early years in life the two rules that he'll have to play in developing his relationship with God. He'll He'll see an example of a son in his father, and he'll see the example of a bride in his mother. And when the two of them work together well, it forms the vision for him that he comes out of that thing seeing his relationship with his father, as a son, and Christ as his bride. A vision of discipline and a life serving God, establishing that. You know, I read a, I I, I wrote these down years ago, <clears throat> what I think are, and I'm I'll close with this, I, I, what I think are seven really good things to keep in mind with your kids. I, I think first of all, I think, and, and I and I'll be the first to tell you. I am not standing up here saying look at me I've failed in so many of these. I've failed in all of these probably. I mean uh, I don't want you to think for a moment that I'm your poster child of what a good father should be. I I I'm not. I I and I I feel bad about that, but I you know I'm just telling you. I, I, these are things that I wished I would have done. Uh but you know one of the things that I, I, I've, I've learned over the years that good, wholesome experiences during the early times in our lives will do more to influence uh, and, and character development than any other thing that you do. Getting into those lives and coming to the place where you have the experience. Making good memories with them early in life. That will never leave them and form the foundation of a good relationship that you always think back, I don't want to lose this because of what I had back here. The second thing is right leadership. I'll be very honest with you. I've seen a lot of problems in couples' lives when it comes to their kids and it comes to their own spiritual relationship with the Lord where the wife runs the house. <clears throat> Dad may be a six, 7 foot 10, 450 pound linebacker but when that little 112 pound girl says do this she puts his tail between his legs and does it you cannot run a family with a role reversal you just can't it'll destroy your family and you can't ever really have a working relationship with christ either cause it's backwards <laughs> there has to be a role where the father takes the lead he has to he has to and i i've seen situations where the woman did it and she does and she's a good woman and she does the best she can i've seen the situations in our own church where you know where over the years where you know that um that uh, the wife just runs the roost and it causes problems and everything. The husband should be the one to stand up and say, will you please shut up and sit down? And she looks at him and she says, when I want your opinion, darling, I'll give it to you. He says, me and my wife, my wife and I have a great relationship. She always gives me the last word. She says, shut up, and I say, yes, dear. Backwards. The third thing is direct communication and dialogue. It'll develop social skills. It'll build the right relationship that leads to the right fellowship. Be able to talk to your kids. Develop the relationship where you can openly, honestly talk to them back and forth and find out where they're at. And I I know this is all hard when you work all day long and all that stuff, but it comes down to it's a lot easier. It really is. It's, a, it's harder when you don't have a vision for your family so you just come home from work and then got to try to talk to him. It's a lot easier when your family is established with a vision of where we're going as a family. It makes everything else easier to deal with. The fourth thing, the best parents will be the ones that excel in the next three things, five, six, and seven. Number five will be support and design and organization of their child's environment. Be involved in what your kid does at school. Be involved in what they do with sports. Be involved in that. Use it as lessons. You realize that when they go to school, go play sports, they're not always going to win. You know, sometimes they're going to get a coach that gets way out of line and he, he requires too much of them and he gets out. Use it. Use it. Realize that life is going to give them some bad turns. You cannot protect your child from all the bad things in life. And you thinking you can will, will end the moment they get out of your grasp and they have to read the real world and they'll fold up like a broken card. They have to know. There's things out there that are going to come down their way that are not going to be good for them. And you can't always blame it on somebody else. And even when, you, even when it is somebody else's fault, sometimes you got to say, you know what, honey? You know what, buddy? You get out in the workforce, there's going to be other situations just like this. You know what? It isn't fair, but much in life is not fair. And I'll tell you something else. You hear what Pastor Bob says all the time. Sometimes you're not responsible for the bad things that happen to you in life, but you're always responsible for how you deal with them. So let's deal with this the right way. See? Direct interaction with them in the little things of life. Taking the time to stop and pay attention to what's important to them, even if it's not very important to you. Bible says... I mean, excuse me, on Bible study night, Thursday night, you'll notice my format is to answer every question. And I want to be honest with you, and I don't mean this in a bad way, because I understand where everybody's at. But sometimes some of the questions that people ask, from my standpoint, are the dumbest thing on the planet. And I don't mean that in a bad way. And the reason I don't mean that in a bad way is because I understand that even at that, my job is to take the time and make it like it's the most important question on the planet. You know why? Because I've adopted the concept that if it's important to you, it's important to me. No matter what I may think about it or what my mindset will be on it or how many times I've been through this a thousand times, or you should get this. Doesn't matter. If it's important to you, the little things, then those are the things I'm going to focus on. No matter how many times I've had to do it before. And then the seventh thing strong and firm discipline with a biblical form of chastisement. All the, all, all, all the while, uh, uh, as God uh, did with Israel, displaying and showing a great and undying love for that child. Explaining at every opportunity, look, buddy, I'm going to have to deal with you on this, and this is what we're going to have to do. And then after you have to go through the corporal punishment, if you give them a spank, whatever you do, then you don't just don't let them go. You sit down there with them. You love them. You do what God does with you when you get out of fellowship. When you get back, right, he puts his arms around you and he makes you know it's okay. That's when you reinforce with that child that it's okay. <clears throat> that I've made mistakes with God and God's had to deal with me, but God's trusted you to me and I have to make sure you're God's heritage, you keep the vision going. So you know what? I'm going to have to whip you. But I love you. And after we're done, come here. Let me hold you. Let me hold you. Come on, let's pray together. Son, I did what I had to do. Honey, I did what I had to do because I want you to be the everything that God wants you to be. And there's some things out in this world that will hurt you and keep you from that and I'm going to make sure that I do whatever I got to do because I love you. You know what? God put all of His chastisement that was mine on His Son. And God doesn't let me get away with what I want to do. And I am mandated by God not to allow you to get away with what you want to get away with because I love you. So here it comes, buddy. Drop them. Bend over. One, two, three, four. He's crying. She's crying. Then you pull him close to you and you say, I love you. I only did that because of the fact that I want you to be everything that God wants you to be. I did it because I need you. We need you in this family. You're an important part of this family. And I need you to be everything that God wants you to be because you're God's heritage. And someday I want to stand together. That's it. God has never spared his hand of chastisement toward Israel, and at the second coming of Christ, God finally establishes his kingdom because of his undying love and faithfulness to his son or his wife, however you want to study it, the nation of Israel. And they will inherit all that God has for them (coughs) and will be the central piece of God's program for all of eternity. And in like manner, when you spare not the hand of discipline and chastisement in your son's life, when you don't hold back you don't give in when he starts to cry and whine and, and, and scream and complain. There will come a day when we will all stand as a family. He'll stand by your side at the judgment seat of Christ and receive the inheritance because you're undying love and faithful in them as your son or your daughter that you love them enough to hold them accountable, to dissolve them because you saw them as God's heritage. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 11. The fact that chastisement of God toward his children and our chastisement of our own children will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness that God wants us to have. And remember Psalms 94.12, it says, Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth, O Lord, and teacheth him out of thy law. Chastisement is God's hand on Israel to bring them back as God's son. In a practical sense, it's us as parents and the chastisement and discipline of our children to bring them and keep them where God wants them to be. In both cases, Israel and your children are God's heritage. And it's our job as parents to be the caretakers, the stewards of that. To make sure that your child, male or female, goes through those stages to be get the relationship with God that God wants them to have. That they have the chance to be everything that God wants them to be. Every head bowed and every eye closed.